one Dave here from Casual Shooters Podcast. Uh, just a couple things real quick. Laser app. Uh, on our website, I've added a new page. If you go to sponsors, you can see links to all of our sponsors. There's a link for Laser app. You can get 15% off with our code. It's on the website, but it's a great dry fire tool. It's a shot timer and recorder. So it'll record your first shot, splits, transitions. It's even diverse enough that you can set up arrays in different rooms so that you can have to move from one to another. It'll record everything. Amazing device. Check it out. Go to our webpage, casualshooterpodcast.com. Also, Hoist. We've got our discount code on the webpage again, same page. But you get 10% off there, and we're talking IV level hydration for those of you shooting major matches this summer. Even your local matches. It will help keep you hydrated. So go check it out. And also Gun Butter. There's a link for Gun Butter. You can get 20% off with our link. Uh, it's excellent lubrication for your pistols. Put a little on your lugs. The grease on the lugs of your rifle, good to go. All right, so go to our webpage, casualshooterpodcast.com. Go to the sponsor page. Links to their website right there, and the codes are on there for you. All right? Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you later. Welcome to this week's edition of the Casual Shooters Podcast, your premier podcast for the casual shooter. I'm Dave, your host. Leo, this is when you say hello to everyone. And it was a silent hello. All the people in Podbean world can't hear you. All right, Chris. <laughs> hello. I'm here. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he's gotten the whole idea that this is mostly an audio thing. Right. Well, I don't know. Maybe it'd be like black and white movies back in the day. <laughs> this is this is only episode 95, but we're getting there. <laughs> we'll hold up All two right. cards. <laughs> yeah. So this week's guest is a USPSA Grandmaster in Carry Optics Unlimited, world-class BJJ practitioner, and of course my favorite, a former Marine. So this week we're going to uh, we're bringing in Lane Grease. Hello, Lane. Hi, guys. He's a little incognito, uh, but. His audio is fantastic. Lane, why don't you take a moment and introduce yourself? I say, everybody who knows me is not in any way surprised <laughs> that I couldn't make this work. The worst part about this was that I went and put on a shirt because I was like, uh, I don't know, maybe they're not like the shirtless on the podcast guys. And now I feel dumb because I'm wearing a shirt. So <laughs> He's Dave has say been it. the shirtless. This guy on the podcast. <laughs> yes, Dave has been shirtless. Uh, That's good. Like, I don't understand why we would change our normal. Uh, like, our game. very first podcast. <laughs> yeah. True story. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, you guys can see me. I forgot. <laughs> oh, goodness. I mean, we weren't complaining. <laughs> well. <laughs> Whatever puts butts in the seats, like you can't argue with that, you know. <laughs> exactly. All right. So, Lane, what we normally do is ask a few questions to get to know our guest. Leo, there's been a little bit of a change up. You got the first two, then Huggy will get the next two, and then I'll take the last one. So we're not going back and forth. All right. Roger you that. ready, Lane? Yeah. <laughs> All right. 
Take okay. it away, Leo. So, so we like to kick this off with possibly the most important question ever devised by man. Um, and that question is, what is your favorite movie? Ooh. <laughs> That's good. I usually break it down by genre, but I'm going to say Aliens. Ooh. Oh. So the I don't think we've had that. an Aliens. Yeah. Oh, like, this, aliens like, too. Everything about that. Like, especially as a Marine, like the colonial Marine quotes from that are just timeless and perfect. You know, like I like to keep this handy for close encounters. Like that shit is like, that'll never die, you know? <laughs> and um, yeah, no, that's, uh, that's one of those movies for me that just like, I, I mean, I've watched it a bajillion times and like, I still get like nervous at parts of it. It's like, you're like, you know, the freaking aliens right there, but it's like, you're just waiting on them to like show themselves, you know? No, I like it. It's a solid choice. Uh, very much appreciate it. So that's it good. Is. Uh, it's a good kickoff. Yeah, it's a good kickoff. Good way to, to start the show. Um, we like to get a little bit more cerebral with our follow-up questions. So uh, in that note, what is your favorite book and coloring books don't count? <laughs> um, that's good. Uh I have a whole bunch of like favorite books, but uh, of mice and men is probably, if not my top one, it's top two. And I always really liked the watchers by Dean Koontz. Mm. Those are both very good choices. I like that. Yeah. That's interesting. That's a very interesting choice. Actually went back, well, it's probably been like a year or so ago now, but uh Cause I read like all those, like, you know, kind of like Dean Koontz and Stephen King and Robin cookbooks, a lot of those in like junior high and high school and mm -hmm. whatever. And then it, it kind of hit me like a year or two ago. I was like, I wonder if those books are like as good as I remember them being. So I bought some of them to like read them again. And, uh, and watchers, uh, was one that I was like, damn, like that's, that's at least as good as I remember it being like, that was a, that was a really good one. Hmm. I don't. I don't know if I've. Re I'm trying to remember. I feel like I've read something of his, but I can't remember what. Like it, it holds up over time. Yeah. yeah. And well, and that, and it's, you know, and you also like, obviously, like I can process things at a much like better level now than I could. Yeah, when I was, sure. You know, twelve or thirteen or whatever. So I'm like, I wonder how much like I missed that was written in some of this stuff. You know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All well, right, all right, Huggy. So I would. <laughs> I think Dave started laughing because of my face, <laughs> the look I yeah. had. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, so my question for you is, and I'm gonna is who yeah, is your the, the the deeper stuff that you're like, oh, oh, uh, wow. So so ahead, yeah, Huggy. yeah. Leo just like chopped that old thing all up. But anyway, <laughs> so Lane. My uh, special question for you is, who is your favorite superhero? And it can't be underdog. No underdog. No underdog. <laughs> um, I guess, can I say the Punisher? Like, is he a superhero? Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah, I just, yes. I'm very, I'm very much on the train of, like, I'm not really, like, a, a good and evil kind of person. Just a, like pay dividends where dividends need to be paid. And, and I kind of yeah. like that, uh, that, that side of what he does. Plus obviously like, you know, 
the whole Marine Corps thing and stuff, you know. So yeah. You yeah. can't um, go wrong with that. See, it gave me chills. I love it. <laughs> I love it. I mean, I mean, now the question is, which Punisher movie do you like? Do you like the the older movies of the Punisher or do you like the new Netflix series? That's a good, you know, I actually, I liked the, the Thomas Jane one. Apparently everybody else thought that one sucked. I guess I thought mm -hmm. that one was like, all right. Mm -hmm. um, but I do like, um, what, who is it? Uh, uh, John Bernthal. Like I like yeah. that Punisher. Mm. It's, it's like, you know, he's like way more violent. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the, like the Thomas Jane one was, uh, it's kind of a little bit more, uh, a little more complex with some of his stuff, but, uh, right. Like I always love that because when he gets shot in like Puerto Rico or whatever it is, and he washes up on shore, and then there's the uh, that guy like helps him out, mm -hmm. and then uh, when he finally is like, "Hey, I'm heading back," you know, the guy goes, "Go with God." And he goes, "God's gonna sit this one out." And like I just, I always thought that was just a badass line, and then uh, it just shows up back in Miami or where the hell it was they were, Tampa or whatever. But yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, I yeah. I feel though I feel that Bergenthal is small for someone who you want to play the Punisher, though. I feel like the new guy they got for Jack Reacher, that new Reacher series, oh, yeah. that's the kind of guy you wanted for the Punisher. Uh, I don't know. I, I think that he's just too big. The Punisher is just, you know, he's an average guy that just, you know, is like, to me, is like, you know, enough's enough. I'm not taking it anymore. You know, that's just my perception. No, I, I okay. think along the same lines. Is any marine an average guy? Oh, there's a lot of, like that at best. There, you know, like. <laughs> <laughs> but I I do like the new Jack Reacher. He is that's a good series too. I would say. Yeah, and I think he's super yeah. well cast in that because that character is more of a like kind of a quiet, like just like very mm -hmm. physically intimidating, but he's not the like super. I don't know what you like. You know how you want to describe it? Like super active, ultra violent type mm -hmm. that like. The John Bernthal right. like Punisher is where like I think he plays it really well because that guy's just like pure savagery, you know. Yeah. Now, Lane, are you familiar with um, another series of books that's based on a former Marine, but this time in Vietnam, the Mac Bolan Executioner books? You know, I want to say I've read one or two of those, and I'm definitely familiar conceptually, but I I, I don't remember. Like, I, I want to say that I read them because it just it sounds so familiar, but I don't honestly know which ones it would have been. I've probably read about six of those. Those are really good. I enjoy those. I'm going to have to get back into those. All right, Huggy, go ahead. Your next one. Oh, okay. So my next question <laughs> is, <laughs> is what is your favorite gun and favorite caliber? Hmm. A lot of things with that. <laughs> uh, I've listened to your podcast. I know. <laughs> I mean, would you say like the question is more of like for me to use personally now or just like, you know, kind of, uh, you know, thinking, you know, in terms of, I guess, like historical enjoyment, well, give, I guess. Give us, give us both. Or, give us, give us both sides of it. Okay. I mean, I think as far as like what I use now, like I, I shoot and carry CZ P10s and I, I love them. Like they're just fantastic guns for me, um, you know, and, uh, and, and I wish I could say that as someone who was like sponsored and like you know hey like now that i'm saying your name like give me a bunch of money but no it's just uh <laughs> no it's just i you know i'm i'm really good friends with the cz guys and i was switching because i shot xds for the first three years that i was when i was shooting limited division i was shooting an xd and 40 cal actually 
And uh, I was like, hey, I need to like go away from this. And I was like, hey, I talked to one of the CZ guys. I'm like, hey, is the P10 a good gun? He's like, yeah, you'll love it. I said, okay, just bought it and started using it. Like never, never held one, never tried it or whatever. And um, man, I really, I really like those guns. Like I, I shoot full size in competition. I carry full size for like duty gigs that I do and then carried compact and really like it. Um, and I would say like, you know, historically, I think I got to lean towards, I think I got to lean towards the M1. I just, uh, I don't honestly think I like it as much now, but like when I was a kid and when I was in high school and even in the Marine Corps, I was just always obsessed with that rifle. You know, my mother, like uh, my parents bought me one, like right before my first deployment is like, uh, I think it was a CMP gun. And, um, so, uh, like I got that and, uh, it was just always like obsessed with that. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's got the distinctive look, the sound, the feel to it. And it's like, well, especially when you're like a young, stupid Marine and you're like, you know, I grew up shooting like mini 14 and like, you know, you're shooting your, you know, M16, A4 and stuff. And then it's like, you start, you start whomping rounds with, you know, a freaking 30 out six and you're like, oh, so this, uh, they did things a little bit different back in that day. So <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> so I've been, I've been listening to a few of your podcasts and I've looked at your website and stuff. So I usually do the fifth and final question of this genre that we do is uh, one unique to you. So knowing your BJJ past, who is your favorite MMA fighter slash BJJ practitioner, whichever you prefer to go with? Very good question. Because I like a lot of them. I would say probably Fedor. Fedor Emelianenko. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, just, oh, uh, gee. Wow. Yeah, a guy who, you know, kind of was one of the first, like, prototype, extremely well-rounded guys, especially for a heavyweight. You know, it was like 235-pound guy, um, fantastic wrestler, fantastic grappler, fantastic striker. Like, he beat guys in all the ways that you can beat him in mixed martial arts, um, fought the best of his era and beat the best of his era, and... Um, and then it was also like, I think somebody that personality wise, I uh, line up with very much like he, he like, you know, he, there's the famous, you know, like memes of like the Fedor face, like Fedor excited. Oh, Fedor's really mad. Oh, Fedor's happy. And they're all just him, like just, you know, stone faced. And, uh, and I'm kind of the same way. I've never been into the like selling fights and the talking trash and the like jaw and like during competitions, you know, or, you know, whatever the sport it was, he's just, uh, He's just like a humble, like very like a like a workman kind of dude, and then he also happens to be like really good at it. So definitely, Fedor is uh, Fedor is a big one. Yep. Okay. Wow. I like it. That's definitely the OG right there. I mean, some still consider him to be the goat. Definitely has a very good claim to be the heavyweight goat. That's for sure. For sure. All right. So back on topic. Where, where did you grow up? Uh, I am from Western Iowa. So a town about, you know, close to Sioux city, Iowa for guys who okay. are familiar in the Midwest. So, uh, just a farm town in Western Iowa. Nothing, nothing particularly special. <laughs> did you grow up on a farm? No. So I live in town. Um, but, uh, you know, I think my town was somewhere in the mid two thousands or maybe close to 3000 people. And it was like by far the biggest town within a, 30 mile radius around there. So, wow. Okay. 
the the little town near me has almost 20,000 people and I call that small. <laughs> Goodness. So when did you first shoot a gun? I think the first gun I shot was when I went to Hunter's Safety in junior high, probably. Because my, my dad wasn't a gun guy or a hunter or anything. And um, I got a BB gun when I was in middle school at some point. But I think the first real gun I shot was when I took Hunter Safety with all my friends. And so you got to – part of our Hunter Safety thing was you got to shoot like – five arrows from a recurve bow. You got to shoot 10 rounds from a bolt action 22. And then you got to go shoot three rounds through a 28 shotgun at clay pigeons. Okay. Just like a familiarization fire. Yeah. You know, cause you had like the, the one or two nights of class or whatever it was. And then you took the test and then they went out and they just did like a, kind of like a little live fire, you know, sort of a morning out at the, uh, out at the lake. That's uh, like out past town a little bit. Okay. So how, or when did you decide that you were going to join the Marines then? Um, well, so I, I knew I was going to go into military probably by like freshman, maybe sophomore year of high school. But like going to the actual Marine Corps was kind of like the end of the process. Because I think like initially, like I've always been obsessed with military history as far back as I can remember. I remember being in elementary school and going to the library and like checking out those really big like time life books that have like all the world war two pit you know there's like there's like the air mm -hmm. section you know and like i take however many of those they would let me take go home and then i'd bring them back and um so i mean i've been obsessed as far back as my memories go and so then i, I got on a really big kick there where i was reading um i read all the michael shara books you know so like uh, gods and generals killer angels um last full measure you know like the gettysburg stuff and and uh and things like that and so I was super obsessed with like going to West Point. I was like, hey, you know, I want to go to West Point. I want to be an officer, you know, like lineage and fancy and all that stuff. And um, and then like, you know, when you kind of like look at the process, it was like, you know, you have to go get like a you know a referral or something from your senator. I can't remember exactly how that works, but something like the senator can only give like two referrals, I think. Well, it just so happened another kid in my class got a referral to West Point and him and I were like, you know, very even, you know, as far as intellectually, athletically. So it wasn't like he was more qualified than me. But in my head, I was like, there's no chance they're going to give the only two referrals that one of our two senators has to two kids from the same podunk town in Western Iowa. Like there's, you know, so I was like, so I was like, okay, so do you go to the Naval Academy? And I was like, well, okay, you go to the Naval Academy, you can like, or at least the theory at that time, what people said was you can request to like go on like, you know, the Marine side, but that it's not like a guarantee. And I was like, damn, like I don't want to end up in the Navy. That, that sounds terrible. <laughs> and then, uh, <laughs> and then, you know, things were kind of ramping up, you know, cause then nine 11 happened. Would have been, when I was a sophomore or a junior. I think I was a junior and, um, 2001, two, 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 three. Yeah. I would have been a junior when nine 11 happened, um, in high school. And so then I was like, okay, I need to try to go somewhere and like get into action as soon as possible. And the Marine Corps like seemed like the way to do that, you know, cause they were like, you know, the, like the recruiters would come to our school and it was like the air force, like recruiters that came around were total turds. The army guys that came around were total turds. Uh, the national guard guys were kind of cool. Cause they would always bring in like the scaffolding and set up like the little like rappel thing. And they let us like, you know, you could go like use night vision in like the movie theater. Sometimes they'd, they'd, they'd set up like that stuff. And then there was like the Marine guy and the Marine guys were kind of like, kind of cool. So like for me, that kind of sold it. You know, I, I was like, I, I'm going to, you know, 
like, you know, first to fight all this and that, bam, going Marine Corps, you know, so I enlisted between my junior and senior year of high school. So you went straight in from high school then? Yeah. Yeah. I graduated in 2003, like in May. And then in June, I was at, uh, I went to boot camp then. Okay. Now you were an 0311. So you were a grunt. Did you, did you go an open contract? No, I went in as an 03 on contract. Okay. Now, how did you choose that MOS? Um, I mean, you know, like pretty much everyone else, I was like, listen, like, I want to go and shoot people. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to go build stuff. I was like, I don't want to be stuck in a tank all day. I was like, I don't want to be a mechanic. I was like, I want to, I want to live in a hole in the ground and, and shoot people. So <laughs> I made it very easy on the recruiters. I was like, Hey, just, just give me this, you know, like <laughs> I, I asked because I knew that before I went in that I wanted to be Marine reconnaissance but I had to be an 0311 in order, or I had to be a grunt in order to do that. So I made sure I was guaranteed 0311 going in. That's why I was asking. Most people, you know, they just go in open contract and that's where they get put. Yeah. And that's, I don't know, because there's a couple guys I was in boot camp with who were open contract and none of them got made 03s. Um, really? Yeah. And um, I mean, and you know, because you know from being in, so at least the number they threw out when I was in that um, it was uh, it was a one out of seven. So one seven, so 14% of the Marine Corps are, are O3s. So it's the biggest single MOS, but it's by far not the plurality, you know, as far as Marines go. So yeah, we had we had a couple guys that were open contract. And so like the joke was always like, oh, hey, you know, you're O3s. And like, nope, neither one, like none of those dudes ended up as O3s, so. <laughs> wow. Okay. So then- when you went to infantry school, did you get a choice on your specific MOS? Like, did you get like the wish list or anything or did they just, uh, were they just assign no. you? So when I went in, I was guaranteed 0311. Okay. So when I went to, so I went to, um, Paris Island. Did you go to San Diego from San Diego? Yep. All right. So when, after boot camp in Paris Island, I went to Lejeune. And at infantry training school there, that's where I already had orders for 0311 to go there. And then I took the recon in doc at that point, got selected, and then went to a reconnaissance unit after that, straight nice. from there. Yeah. Well, and that's actually exactly, that's what happened to me, but I was voluntold for that. It was so go to infantry school. Oh. Um, and so what they told us there I don't think it ever, like, you know, the, the rumor mill was always that like, you get to list like, you know, three choices that you want to be for your specific MOS. Cause when I was in infantry school, I think it was like eight training weeks. And so it was like the first half was like general training. So everyone trained together. And then at about the four week mark, then they split you up into individual MOSs, you know, 0311s, 31s, 41s, um, 51s. We didn't have any 0352s or anything, um, mm. you know, in my okay. particular company. Well, so then, at some point when I was in infantry school, they brought uh, like a few of us, they called us into first sergeant's office and they were like, hey, or they didn't call us into first sergeant's office, sorry. They, they called us basically up on the deck and, and they were like, hey, you guys need to, uh, you know, pack, you know, PT gear and MRE and be on the grinder at like, you know, 0400 tomorrow or whatever. We're like, oh, okay. And um, 
so then they they sent us over to Camp San Mateo to do a, a recon in doc. And like we had no idea. Like we they didn't tell us beforehand. They basically <laughs> just picked all the guys who had first class PFTs <sighs> and like high enough GT scores and sent us up there. And uh, and those dudes like this was so it was literally. It were it was all the guys that got busted in the big hazing incident stuff for the recon guys. Like mm. those were the dudes they got busted like right after they did our in dock. And so when we got sent to our units out of infantry school, and I got sent over to one Romeo one, so first recon battalion was like right after they had gotten, you know, like you know, the hammer had come down on those guys. So at our in dock, it was just it was just a slaughter fest. So I'm trying to think, I want to say there was something like 20 people total. Um, and so I'm trying to think, so, so obviously, so you do all the pool stuff first, you know, so we, we do the uh, right. 25 meter swim. swim, you know, we do the, the grab the rifle off the bottom of the pool thing, come up, we do the, uh, the 30 minute tread water, then the 500 meter swim, you know, all in camis and boots and stuff. And, right. uh, so we had people kind of like, you know, so the people coming from the fleet, a couple of them, you know, like, like, you know, DOR, like doing that stuff. And then when we were treading water, we had, we had like, you know, five or six people shallow water blackout and they get pulled out. And we actually had a guy drown while we were doing the tread mm. water. So he, uh, like, you know, he's like really struggling or whatever. And he basically just takes himself to the edge of the pool and gets out. And they, they start screaming. They're like, get back in, get back in. And so this guy, like, he goes, okay, runs, jumps back in and just never comes back up. And so they they haul him out. They got him on the side. They they had to call the meat wagon out and everything. So they're literally zapping Holy him on the cow. side of the pool. Like they're they're hitting him with the defib, and we're still damn. Water. And we're like, uh, so like you know, is that guy going to be? And he's one of the guys from infantry <laughs> school. And we're like, uh, so is that dude going to be like okay or what? So anyway, so we get done with all that, and then they send us you know to do the PFT, and it was like the meanest thing, you know, like psychologically that they could have done. So they're like. Um, so the guy actually running the like part of the run was Rudy Reyes, who's kind of a famous recon guy. Oh yeah, you know yeah. He, he's done a couple like I don't know like Survivor Man, whatever you want to call him, like survival type of shows or whatever. He was one of the cadre mm -hmm. guys, and so they're like, hey, you know, put on your PT gear and uh, follow Sergeant Reyes. So he just takes off running into like like nowhere, like they just invented a PFT course out here. So we run like three miles. I'm like, okay, cool. So I guess that was the PFT. And they're like, all right, you got five minutes to stretch. Then you're gonna run down this gravel road, run around the truck when you see it, and then come back. And so they ran us three miles out to run the PFT. So my time was just atrocious because I'm exhausted. And then we get back. And I'm like, all right, cool. So we're going to get in the back of the truck and come back. And they're like, all right, follow Sergeant Reyes back. And I'm like, man, this sucks. Like, you know, so we got to run all the way back too. And uh, <laughs> yeah, then we get all the way to infantry school. So I was actually, we didn't get a choice on MOSs. So they assigned me to be 0341, so mortarman. And thankfully, I didn't mm. want to be a mortarman. Um, but it was literally the day that you split to go grab your stuff. I'm like, you know, with my group of soon to be mortarmen going over to pick up our tubes and stuff from the armory. And they call me and it's either five of us total or me and five other guys. They call us in the first arms office. And they're like, hey, you know, just want to let you guys know, like you guys are all dropping your MOSs, picking up 0311. And then on graduation, you guys are all going to be sent to one Romeo one. So first recon battalion. We're like, oh. Okay then. So, yeah. So they sent us over there, like right after, uh, right after we graduated. Okay. So, how long were you at First Recon? Uh, I was there a few months. So I got there. We graduated infantry school Thanksgiving week. So there are no more pre BRC classes uh, for the right. year, and so then they didn't send any of the the newest guys to the first BRC class that started in January. So they made us go to pre-BRC. 
Um, but it wasn't like the kind of formal pre-BRC. I don't know if they had pre-BRC for you at the time, um, you know, because they, they kind of set up a little bit more of a formal, like a three-week, you know, like training class so that the guys that they were sent into BRC were better prepared. And so while we were doing all that, and I ended up breaking my hand at uh, at some point in there. And I'll be honest, like I had no desire to be in recon battalion whatsoever. Like no party wanted to go there because every time they kept talking to us, they're like, oh, you know, we're snooping and pooping and we're out here observing and we're doing, you know, this or that, you know, and like, you know, like we love it. We're going to crawl up on the enemy and observe. And I'm like, I'm going to be honest. I don't want to do any of that. Like I want to break things, <laughs> light it on fire. Like you're describing my nightmare, which is like, this sounds an awful lot like bow hunting, you know, like I don't want to go sit in a tree all day, you know, like, and, but nobody ever asked me if I wanted to be there. So I just, I just trained my ass off with them. And um, so I break my hand and uh, but I'm still in training. And so whenever they would PT or go to the pool, they would literally just make me do lunges. And so I just I do like, you know, like four or five hours of lunges like a day. And so the gunnery sergeant, uh, Gunny Swore was his name. Um, I'm trying to think of what his technical position was. But he basically they were just dog cussing one of the guys that was in the pre-BRC class who was, you know, a really like non-hacker. And they kind of brought up and they're like, they're like, oh, you know, like why don't you be more like Greece over here? You know, like, you're like, Greece wants to be here. Don't you? Greece? I was like, no, no. he's like, and he's like, what? And I was like, I was like, no, I don't want to be here. He's like, why are you here? I was like, they sent me here. And he's like, well, how come you didn't quit? I was like, well, I'm not going to quit. Nobody said you could quit. Just nobody ever asked me if I wanted to be here. And so then they were like, oh, okay. So then they sent me to a, so they sent me to a, a line unit, like after that. And like, it was just, it was literally just as simple as that. Like, you know, I'm too, too big and dumb, you know, and, and, uh, you know, hard headed. I was not, I wasn't going to like do a bad job, but it's just like, nobody ever asked if I wanted to go there. And as soon as he did, they're like, Oh, well, if you didn't want to be here, we'll just sit somewhere else. So <laughs> that's hysterical. <laughs> like Greece, Greece wants to be here. No, I don't. <laughs> that is classic. Oh, that is awesome. So when I was in long time ago, Lane, um, when I graduated ITS, it was middle of December. And there was a there was a huge gap or shortage at third recon battalion at Camp Schwab in Okinawa. And there were a bunch of us they were going to send there, but they wanted to send us to what at that time was amphibious reconnaissance school. Before it was BRC, it was ARS. Mm -hmm. And they were like, well, AR the folks at little uh little story little anyway out in virginia beach um they were closed down until middle of january we're like well we can't send these guys there for a month with with nowhere to report so they sent us all to Okin. well like 11 or 12 of us to okinawa and we got there they were like what the hell are we going to do with these guys none of them are trained what the hell are we going to do so at that time, so now we're talking December of 85, there were a bunch of Vietnam vets there. The colonel of the battalion was, um, he made, a, he wasn't a hero or anything like that, but he had captured a bunch of um, Chinese or Russian artillery in Vietnam. Um, and we had some other people in the battalion that were all Vietnam vets who were like, all right, we're going to run our own course. So we did a 38 day straight course in May of the following year. No time off, just straight. So we did a 
28 day in the jungle and then came back to garrison four hours later we were they gave us four hours to do laundry and then a 10 day straight cycle of amphibious reconnaissance so and then that's what we did and that's how we got our mos nice did you have to go to seer to pick up the 21 designator at that time or was it just no ars gotcha it was just ars and then they would try to get you to other schools like I was supposed to go to scuba, but nobody would sign off on my stuff. And then I couldn't get to jump over there because when the school came down, the um, the flight surgeon was on leave. So there was nobody to sign my physical. It wasn't until I, when I got to second recon, I went to, hold on a second. Hey, I, um, I went to Pathfinder, then Airborne, and then when I got to the sniper school, I went to, um, oh, shoot, what is it? Uh, I can't even think of it right now. Long Range Surveillance Leaders Course, put on by the Ranger Bat. So I did Naval Gunfire and a couple other little ones, but how about you? Yeah. Any good schools? No, I never really did um, like any schools. So they had a... It was kind of new. I might have been one of the first or maybe even like the first class to go through it. It's called the EMP, so the Enhanced Marksmanship Program. It was like a week-long like class. And so it's kind of um, – it's basically like a CQB and like a close quarters marksmanship with rifle kind of class, um, which, I mean, looking at it compared to like things that we know now or things that I've done now, it was kind of, you know, kind of a little bit hokey. But at the time, I mean, for the live fire, I think we did two days – of like live fire where we were just like training. And then the third day was like, you know, like training and qualification. And we probably shot like 800 rounds or so in that time. And obviously okay. like at that time, that was like way more than I'd ever done. And that's like way more than you typically do, you know, as a grunt. I mean, like occasionally you'll go do like range yeah. 400 at CACs or something, you know, and you'll shoot a whole bunch, but it's not like focused training. It's just like, Hey, shoot six mags suppressing that fake BMP on the Hill over there kind of stuff or whatever. Right. You know. Yep. Suppressive um, fire, yeah. Yeah, and so the, the idea was it was like EMP instructor course technically. I don't know if that's different than just EMP, but anyways. But so it was supposed to be basically then we were supposed to come back to our units because this was in between my first deployment and my second deployment. And then we were supposed to come back and basically like, you know, because they sent a couple guys from the company. Um, and then we're supposed to be kind of, you know, like, you know, instructors or assist instructing for like marksmanship stuff. But then obviously we got back. We did like one range where they're like, you know, tried to have us like kind of set stuff up. And then uh, like one of the platoon sergeants basically just took stuff over and had us do all the same dumb shit that we've been doing before. Like, all right, cool. Really glad you guys, you know, came up with this idea that we weren't going to like try to use at all, you know? Um, but no, that was about it. Cause obviously on the grunt side, there's just, there's not much access to schools, but then when I was in, right. So I got to my unit in April of 2004, June of 2004, got to Iraq. Um, so first deployment at that time, we got back in like early February, 2005. We were back in Iraq again by September of 2005. And my battalion was in the invasion of Iraq in 2003. So there was just, there wasn't like yeah. a ton of time for those things. Like it was basically just like, you know, like, you know, cause you know, like in the Marine Corps, the cycle is supposed to be like seven month workup, seven month deployment, seven month work down technically speaking, but they basically kind of flipped it to where it was like, just like, you know, for us, it was like eight months deployed and then like seven months back, you know, like for like, you know, just as, like, a, they're just basically, 
you know, by the time you do like, you know, 30 days of like post-deployment leave or whatever, you know, you, you have like four and a half, five months of actual, like, you know, training time. So there, there wasn't really access to that. There was, they, uh, they were trying to send some of us. The only thing that came available was, uh, was green belt instructor course. So for the Marine Corps, uh, martial arts program. And, um, and so they recommended me for that, me and like, I don't want to say it was like one other guy in the company or something. I was like, okay. And so then they kind of briefed me. They're like, hey, it's supposed to be only for like, you know, NCOs and people in NCO billets and everything. So since you're Lance Corporal, like just make sure you tell them that you're a fire team leader, um, you know, and, and everything when you get there. So it's okay. And I was like, oh, okay, that sounds good. And then it was like a couple of days later, they were like, hey, they actually won't take anybody that's not an actual NCO. So you can't go. And then a couple wow. of days later, they're like, hey we're not sending anybody from the company to go. So the company had two slots and they just sent nobody to that. So, I mean, that was like, for me, that was like Marine Corps 101. It's like, you have, you have open training, you have people that want to take those slots and yet nobody, they won't let anybody go train. I was just like, this is, this is kind of ridiculous guys. You know, like, I don't know if there's anything to be gleaned from this, but it's like, why would you not send somebody to, to go train who wants to go train, you know? Yeah, the Marine Corps is uh, the greatest theoretical idea ever, but it's executed poorly. <laughs> that is one way to put it. Yep. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, what are you going to do? But no, I kind of so, skated through. I think a lot of it has to do with obviously like being at like an ultra high tempo time. But so by the time I got out, I was a, I was a sergeant squad leader. I had never been to corporal's course or sergeant's course or squad leader's course. So I just, I just, I, I, so I just snaked my way through all that stuff and without having to hit any of those things somehow. So, <laughs> yeah, but I, I feel like being in a theater of operation during, I won't call it a wartime, but I mean, it was combat uh, just as any other war we've ever been in. Um, I feel like that's a better leadership school than you would get in peacetime. So I think you did okay. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely, you know, I've, I've always been like a really, like a guy who's always trying to like learn stuff and get better at the craft. Plus I'm one of those, like, and you know exactly the D bags I'm talking about in the Marine Corps. And I'm one of those D bags, which are like, like the, uh, like the knowledge and the nomenclature guys, like, like guy who knows yes. like the max effective max range, you know, rates of fire. Like, you know, like I wanted to be that dude who knows all those things just be, it's just stupid, but you know how it is. It's like, there's, you got to find some way to, to measure, uh, measure your, your, uh, you know, dicks with people. Knowledge, and, uh, yeah. yeah. And so, uh, so, you know, I definitely like learned some of those things, but like, I also realized that like, I had some like severe gaps on things, you know, I think part of it was like, I was 20 years old when I was a squad leader. It's just like, that's, that's a, that's a lot of, that's a lot of stuff going on for a guy who's just, who was a teenager yeah. yesterday, you know, like, <laughs> Yes. I hear you. When I went in, I had a contract where I was a corporal 13 months after joining. So I know what you mean. And it wasn't, uh, there were several of us like that at third recon and a lot of the older salty guys did not like that at all. Yep. So bill it over, right. So, you know, but, uh, yeah. So I listening to your podcast, um, I'm going to have a few more questions on military stuff. So what are your thoughts on the Marine Corps getting rid of their tanks? Um, 
you know, within the expeditionary mission of the Marine Corps, it might be okay. Um, you know, because I know they shipped most of them to the Army. I think there's still some that are around. They just haven't, like, shipped over there yet. So it's it's one of those it's, – it's, it's a much more complex and nuanced question, I think, than, than on the surface it sounds like because – the mission of the Marine Corps is supposed to be expeditionary in nature. We're supposed to be able to be places as a MAGTAF, you know, a Marine Air Ground Task Force, very quickly. And so we definitely do not bring the amount of support and ask to a fight that like an army, like armored cab division does. Like we just do not. However, we're in we're in action, snap of the finger. You know, you can have an entire MAGTAF, you know, bam. However, you know, looking at like the, the GWAT, like everything in Iraq was, um, you know, and, and like, and I was in, you know, Phantom Fury there in 2004. So the second battle of Fallujah there. And so that was just like, you know, just like a grind fest, you know, type of fight. So, you know, they're like, we needed to have the tanks and stuff. And we, we had Marine tanks as well right. as Army tanks with us, you know. And, um, and so obviously like we used them and needed them there, but I'll, I'll, like in a way that's kind of like, you know, that's not the mission of the Marine Corps, but you got us in like this occupation role where now, you make it our mission. So if it's where they're trying to get back, you know, like, you know, kind of get us out of foreign entanglements and get back to a little bit more of like traditional textbook mission, I would say it could be perfectly reasonable. However, if they're going to have it be kind of bastardized, like it, it, or at least how it seems to be still now and how it definitely was when I was in where we were, we definitely still had our West packs and our, you know, our Atlantic, you know, and, and med stuff, but we were also doing all of the, uh, occupation related, you know, like, you know, stuff in, you know, in Iraq and Afghanistan, then you kind of, you kind of have to keep the armored assets, I think in that case. Yeah. I look around and, um, you know, even in, I know you do world war two stuff. They were big in the European theater. They're big right now in Ukraine. They were big in Korea. We even used some tanks in the Island hopping campaign. I just kind of feel like, Hmm, you know, how is this going to bite them in, in the ass in the future, knowing that who are, you know, the army is not always there to call on for support. So a lot of times we have to bring everything ourselves. Yeah. And it's, it's definitely an interesting problem. Cause I mean, you're definitely right that we certainly used them, um, you know, in the Pacific and, um, and, you know, we certainly used them in Korea and to a lesser extent, Vietnam, um, mm -hmm. you know, but it's, you've kind of seen, they sort of been like lightening the Marine Corps, you know, as a whole, which might not be a bad idea. Cause I think, and I kind of thought this when I was in was that the idea, or at least what we thought when we were, you know, like, you know, the grunts thought was that we were supposed to be like the ultimate light infantry. We're supposed to be like dudes that like, you know, you get us to a fight quick you know, we get in and we start mixing it up like instantly. But if you want to do occupation stuff or if you want people who are sitting in some sort of extended front lines for a long time playing the artillery duel thing, that's not supposed to be what we do because, no. you know, the, 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 you know, what's supposed to be the nature of the Marine Corps is that obviously like we're amphibious. So you would assume that we would be occupying positions that are near bodies of water and, and other such things where like not only like our individual training, but just the loadout that our units have as a doctrine level have that, you know, we have Amtraks and stuff. So use something like Ukraine, for example, it's like, you'd want us around the Dnieper and shit like that, where you could use the Amphib assets to move, 
you know, amongst that sort of terrain versus like, hey, put these guys in a, you know, in a, a meat grinder artillery duel in a stationary warfare that, you know, at least theoretically, that's not supposed to be what the Marine Corps does, but. Right. No, I agree with that. Just, yeah, it'll be interesting. Now, what are your thoughts on them going away from the MC? Go ahead, Huggy. Well, I was just kind of thinking that maybe they're going to end up giving them suits like, uh, what was that, day, uh, day After Tomorrow? The exoskeleton <laughs> suits or something like that? Yeah. I mean, who knows? You mean you'd be like, what was that game called Halo? You'd be like Master Chief and running around in a suit and everything? Oh, I'm sure they'll have some sort of really bad idea before they get all that worked out. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah the O3s wear. So. <laughs> yeah, I just thought I'd throw it out there. I'm like going, you know, if they usually get rid of getting rid of something, something's coming in. <laughs> it's like when you see it in the media, there's been some poor like Lance Corporal that's been having to wear that on training ops for like eight months, you know, before yeah. the final product comes around, you know, and it's like, but they never talk to him, you know, like nobody ever, <laughs> nobody ever interviews that guy. <laughs> now what are your thoughts on them going away from the m16 m4 platform uh I, I assume you're talking in reference to the the sig m5 um yeah everything i've read about that makes that sound like a terrible weapon and terrible idea i just and this is where i talked about this in one of my podcast episodes because i got mm -hmm. it really wrong for a long time which is just like, you know, one having re like unreasonable expectations of like what a weapon does, you know. Um, but uh, like my personal opinion is that for the role, the 5.56 and the AR family are as good as it gets currently, you know. And I, like my personal opinion is that like until we get some form of new weapon and new ammo, you know, because everything is still some sort of you know, primer and powder and brass shooting a projectile, you know, until, I mean, until we get like some sort of like literal, I don't know, like, you know, phaser, this or that, or some sort of new ammo. It's like, you're always, you're basically just modernizing technology that's a hundred years old, you know, or, or, you know, significantly more than a hundred years old at this point. Um, so I like what the five, five, six gives you, um, it, it, you know, it ain't going to blow a man, you know, out of his clothes and off his feet, but obviously like, the recoil's low. It does uh, when used with the correct ammo and the correct twist rate and stuff like that. It's a it's a perfectly effective round. Um, mm -hmm. It's very easy to handle, especially when you start talking about like you know differences in you know men and women differences in like you know body types and sizes and jobs and stuff like that. And I mean, frankly, the fact that it's been so successful, being able to go from like ten and a half inch or what is it like ten point three inch guns and stuff with cans, you know, up to like when I was in, you know, we had the M sixteen A four, which is a twenty inch barrel gun. The fact that it's been so successful across all that, I think, is, you know, speaks for itself. And then the M five, it just seems like all of the bad things about like the M fourteen and that whole time period of of American history come back again. Cause I've it's actually what I was thinking about doing one of my next podcast episodes on is like how I think that uh, America set back the entire Western world for probably 70 years on firearm stuff because coming out of World War II, somehow everybody else learned from World War II that large magazine, intermediate cartridge, weapons that are handy out to 200, maybe 300, um, you know, select fire were the way to go. But somehow America came away going, you know what we need? The 308. And uh, like, you know, cause the British had the, like the 280 British, um, 
know, they were trying to put on, which is like, you know, a true like intermediate cartridge. Cause you look like now it's like, everyone's going to what, like six arc and 6.5 this. And you know, like, you know, some of those cartridges have been like existed since like the year 1900, you know, like six, five era soccer has been around since the 19th century. And it represents like exactly what the 6.8 like Remington is like six point with the SPC, like right now it's the same thing, you know, and that's been around for, you know, 120 years. And then you got this SIG M5 where they're like, it's heavier. You watch dudes shoot it and they admit that they're not shooting like the full 80,000 PSI ammo in it. And it's clearly hard recoiling. Um, wow. You know, it's, you know, and I've read that they plan to use up to like 110,000 PSI ammo in it. Um, so I think they're going to, they're going to burn barrels out like, you know, in like, dozens or hundreds of rounds and i saw a couple demo videos because the the entire point was supposed to be that you have the ability to defeat like level four like hard plates out to i think it was 300 or, or something like that the distance regardless but um you know with uh with something like a hundred and you know 45 grain round or, or whatever and so i saw someone do a demonstration of the same size round out of a 300 wind mag generating the uh the muzzle velocity that the sig m5 is supposed to do and shooting you know, like rifle plates at distance and at point blank couldn't penetrate it in, you know, in fewer than, uh, you know, like two or three rounds. So like the thing that it says it's supposed to do, it apparently doesn't do, but it's like, I can't imagine how terrible, like something like that is to shoot. And now you're back down to 20 round mags and, um, and, you know, and kind of my personal, like my personal experience leads me to believe that like, as soon, like, as soon as you start stepping up in recoil and in like what I just call like general explosive behavior of the weapon, then the amount that it gets used in combat is going to drop significantly because it's just, it's unpleasant. You know, it's so like dudes will shoot an AR like an awful lot. Now, granted, a lot of it's like ammo wastage and stuff like that, but they will put a lot of rounds in some direction. But I think when you shift to something like the SIG M5, I think the willingness of people to engage outside of like when they're specifically instructed to or when it's really obvious that there's a dude there i think the actual you know willingness is going to go way down on that that's 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 interesting you say that um i had a lieutenant one time quoting what he was saying the the statistics were for marines in world war ii or i don't even think it was marines i think it was just combat infantrymen in general where only 25 percent of them actually put Rounds on target. Hold on. <laughs> I've got one big old Great Dane who likes to bark at everything. Um, but I want to say he he was saying that only 25% of all combat infantrymen were actually putting rounds on target and not just spraying the air. I've, I've and, heard similar things. You know, I think sometimes they quote like, you know, the uh, the Dave Grossman stuff on that, um, and so it, it usually it's thrown out, or at least partially, as a uh, as people's unwillingness to actually aim and shoot at a human. Right. Um, uh, okay. But, but then I think in the same vein, this is my personal like theory, is that like you know, and I own an M1, I own a Gewehr ninety eight Mauser, so you know the the version that was used prior to World War Two, so it's a little bit longer, and. Uh, and some other like you know i own like a mosin nagant and, and and some other and a type 99 jap you know like all world war ii vintage stuff and um 
and they are unpleasant to shoot comparatively. Like it's like if you have something to do and you're kind of like shooting, it's fun to fart around. But you shoot 20, 30 rounds through like that, you know, through an M1 or through that Gewehr 98. And like it's not really fun anymore. You know, it's it's very loud. The recoil is relatively speaking is, is very high. Um, but you take an AR out and like dude will shoot four or five magazines and not be at a point of like physically not liking it anymore. So I think right. – I think that, you know, because the other thing that they usually bring up, you know, in kind of the Grossman reference and stuff is that they've done a lot of training to uh, like psychological related stuff they've introduced into training to try to dehumanize the enemy and get people, to, you know, more willing to fire at people, which I think is accurate. But then I think that's another like positive role that something like the AR and the 5.56 plays uh, is just the fact that like shooting a 5.56 is not very unpleasant. So a dude will sit there and shoot rounds randomly at stuff because... He's like, ah, oh, okay, this is fine, you know. But it's like, if that was an M14 or like an FAL or something, do you think dudes would sit there and like go through the amount of ammo that they would? Like, no, nah, like just no way. <laughs> well, and who wants to lug a heavier weapon around? I mean, you even mentioned in your podcast the M16 with the M203 grenade launcher. Nobody wanted to carry that thing around. Oh yeah, exactly. Yep. So yeah, we'll see how that fall that goes out too. So what, what played the role in you? Um, I had a buddy who was in Fallujah, a first sergeant, uh, Bill Skiles. And, and he told me some some pretty interesting stories because we were all at the – me, him, and another guy were at sniper school together. We still live here in the area. So we get together on occasion and talk about stuff. But did, did any of that play a part in getting out, or did you just want to get on with your life? No, like I actually – I thought Fallujah was awesome. Um, you know, and, you know, from the standpoint that that was what you think war is, you know, like we didn't have anyone around us telling us like what we could and couldn't do, what we couldn't, you know, could shoot and couldn't shoot. Um, I mean, it wasn't really like a, you know, Hey, we're in green. Hey, they're in, you know, you know, yellow or whatever, like kind of thing. So obviously there's still a lot of, you know, play as far as that goes, but it was like, it was a pretty straight up fight. You know, it was like they were in buildings, we were in buildings, we'd go into their buildings, you know, handle business that way. And so all of that I thought made sense. Um, what's What kind of like sold it for me was after my second deployment. So my second deployment, we were out further west and we took over for this reserve Marine battalion who was just getting chopped up out there. And um, it turns out they were getting chopped up because they were just every every like Vietnam war cliche and war movie, like cliche, you know, like tearing their shirts off their, like, you know, their camis sitting their weapons down on patrol and going and sitting against the wall and smoking. Like I personally saw those things. Um, the post that they built on their schoolhouse, they didn't even put sandbags. They literally just put a lawn chair on top of the schoolhouse as like, you know, one of their perimeter posts. And so we did wow. that. So they sent us out to replace them. And basically we, you know, I don't say this in like a bragging way. Like my unit was particularly experienced and the enemy's smarter than you think that they are. So we, we went out there and we were pretty locked on. So the enemy just, you know, they just went 10 miles somewhere else into somebody else's AO. You know, it's like, it's just smart for them. You know, they don't really care about this particular town or that town. You know, they're just trying to find where they can do, do damage, you know, take the least amount of risk. So we did that deployment and, you know, we had some action kind of early on in it, but by the end, it was, there was just nothing going on to the point where like at the battalion firm base, which was the Haditha dam. Uh, so if we were, we were back at battalion. So we had like kind of a rotation where you'd end up back there for a couple of days to do 
you go to, you know, train on the rifle range, do stuff like that. And then you'd also get to go use like the, uh, like the, the phone and call home. And, um, like they were making people wear like eight point covers there and salute officers and, you know, stuff, which you're never supposed to do in war zone. Um, wow. you know, and then other things like, uh, you know, they're doing inspections for like, you know, if you're wearing white socks, cause like, you know, anyone who's been to the desert knows like, like white cotton socks are the jam. Like that's what you want to wear. Um, you know, instead of like anyone who's wearing, you know, like those green wool socks or green boot socks or whatever, they're just awful. Right. You know? Yeah. Well, and so those are technically the only color that's authorized in the Marine Corps. And so we literally had, you know, like the first sergeant, you know, and other people who were like, you know, would tag along on patrol occasionally. And we're going up to like people laying prone while they're on like, you know, perimeter security and like pulling up their, pulling out their, you know, their trousers from their boot bands and being like, you know, oh, you're wearing the wrong color socks or just the fact that they're making us wear boot bands on patrol at all, you know? Oh and, my God. You know, and like, uh, you know, like punishing guys who were like rolling their sleeves, you know, and, and it was all the people who were not present on my first deployment as far as like staff NCOs and officers and stuff. And it was just really dumb. And so at that point, so I got back from that deployment and it would have been about the middle of um, the middle of 2006. And so at that point, like the Marine Corps mission in, in Iraq was kind of done. So, you know, Anbar started to have like, you know, kind of the Anbar, like the awakening, they called it, the Sunni awakening out there, um, you know, and uh, like all the troop surge stuff that happened in like 2007 and eight were all like around Baghdad and up north. And those are all where the army was. The Marine Corps was only in uh, Anbar province by then, you know, cause we had some units, I guess, down by like, you know, Karbala and Najaf a little bit, but, uh, so none of that like concerned us. And so what it looked like to us was that basically we're essentially like getting ready for like garrison mission, you know, cause it, the Taliban resurgence didn't happen again until I think, you know, around like 2009. And so like my contract was up in 2007 and I was like, dude, if like the end of my second deployment is what being in the Marine Corps is like when there's no like war to go overseas to like, I don't want anything to do with that. So once I was up, I was like, I'll just, I'll go to college and then see if maybe I want to come back in after that. And then, yeah. Until next time. Don't be a little bitch. Yeah. Mm -hmm.